This episode is brought to you by Westworld on HBO. The third season explores questions about the nature of our reality, free will, and what makes us human. Hailed by Decider as a technical masterpiece, Westworld is Emmy eligible for outstanding drama series and all other categories. There is an art to being a music supervisor, as 25-year vet Mary Ramos tells us. Not only did she oversee the music for FX's limited series Mrs. America and Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere this season, but she's been Quentin Tarantino's go-to music supervisor throughout his career. For such movies as Pulp Fiction, Django Unchained, and recently Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's here today on Crew Call. Tell us about working as a music supervisor. How did you start? And tell us, ironically, I will say this. So your first, your first film was Dr. Giggles. Oh, good God. <laughs> well, wow. an interesting thing. Um, Manny Cotto, the director of that film, went to my alma mater, Loyola University in New Orleans. So that movie has always had like a special, you know, sort of a special place. Oh, good uh, Lord. Yeah. Because it was in the beginning of his, it, he directed it in the beginning of his career. That's a whole other thing. But tell us about the the role of a music supervisor, because we have an idea that it's being a grand curator of of music, you know. And but there's other things involved. Correct me if I'm wrong, such as clearing rights. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I'm glad. You know. I'm really glad we're doing this today. Have, have you interviewed other music supervisors before? Yes. Um, I interviewed the music supervisor from uh, Better Call Saul. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, Who's in charge, I believe. He led um, the charge on getting an award. Supervisors. Heck yes. Thomas Gallivick. Yeah. Yeah. They, we have some pretty amazing talent in that guild of music supervisors. It's, um, And I'm glad to talk about it because... Um, not a lot of people um, know what a music supervisor does. Um, there is a little bit of mis- misunderstanding of what the job is. Um, and it's it's uh, pretty all-encompassing, you know. Um, uh, least of all, by the way, no one that I went to high school or college with knows what a music supervisor does. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, often I find myself having to explain, no, I don't do Foley. Uh, I mean, I can, but I'm not um, professionally. So um, anyways, we are responsible for all musical aspects of a film or a television show. Um, And that is everything musically um, from sometimes, and every project is different and every director or showrunner is different. They're their orientation to music is different. Um, And so some of them have come to the project with full on ideas about what they want. Uh, Some, you know, it's a lot, uh, you could come on and really help shape the story and help shape the world and the style and everything with um, suggestions about songs and about overall concept and about composers. We, We act as casting directors for composers we um, 
you know, for a particular project, we'll reach out to composers we think are, you know, composer agents that we think have uh, uh, composers who might be right for it. And we sometimes help compile uh, their uh, temp score, their, their, their score reels and tailor them more towards our projects. Cause I, we know our directors and showrunners may only want to listen to maybe four tracks or something. So they're very targeted. Um, we also, uh, some music supervisors don't, but some do. I tend to always like to try and clear um, the rights to the music that I suggest, mainly because mainly because I'm a control freak, right? But I also want to make sure that anything that I suggest, we can get. I don't want to waste my time with stuff that we can't get. Um, so it's always uh, important to try and make sure that everything falls within what we can do. Um, sometimes it, you know, we go outside of our lane. I mean, um, uh, if there's an, if there's a part that calls for a singer in the, in the, sh in the cast, um, we'll help with casting that, um, whether it's casting an actual singer to play the part or it's, um, casting a voice to revoice an actor who doesn't sing their, their, their singing voice. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll, we're responsible for pre-recording, um, orchestrating pre-recordings um, for uh, stories that are more musical, that have actually scenes that are shot to music. Um, really, I mean, and, and we're also, I mean, I, I like to be involved in helping suggest uh, temp music editors um, who help, you know, shape the temp score and the temp music for picture. Um, hmm. And really, I mean, even down to scouring through lyrics, song lyrics, to um, suggest uh, things for um, directors who are in the writing phase, or writer directors who are in the writing phase. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's, you know, and I've said this before, we also hold, you know, rock school for actors who are playing musicians so that they can become more natural and organic with their instruments on camera so that they're not worried about, you know, doing something and so that they're able to act better. Um, so anyways, we, we really come on in all of these different aspects and fill in the blanks wherever they're needed. And um, it's really important for, for this job to be understood because we don't, we don't necessarily get a lot of recognition for what we do. We do now. We have become, uh, lately, our, our guild has um, an award ceremony. Um, the Emmys, thank, thankfully, have just started to acknowledge music supervision. Um, and that's through the great work from, from the Guild of Music Supervisors. Um, but, you know, the, the Oscars, uh, the... the uh, um, don't recognize um, music supervision. Um, and we're actually not even in the music branch. When we are uh, accepted into the Oscars, we aren't uh, the, the Academy, we are not in the music branch. We're uh, members at large. So it's just important to like, I love talking about what we do because it is so important. Music's so important. Um, well, you go, you go, I mean, your, your, your partnership with Quentin Tarantino on, hmm correct me if I'm wrong, a dozen movies or a dozen projects. Um, 
I mean, the iconic moments that you've created, you know, from, you know, you know, hold on, like the Al Green song in Pulp Fiction, you know, Let's Stick Together, everything in, in Pulp Fiction from the opening credits to, to um, um, Son of a Preacher Man, and then, and then continuing on into Once, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, which, by the way, I listened to uh, a little TMI here on my, uh, when I'm at the gym, but uh, <laughs> Brother Loves Traveling Salvation. And, you know, that when that song comes on and we see Mark Quali jumping as Brad Pitt, I mean, these are iconic moments that you've created. Well, cinematic moments that you have created. Um, I, I do want to clarify. I, yeah. Because, like I said, every project is different. Every director's association to music is different. Every music need for in every project is different. So when I work with Quentin, and I'll, clarify, I'll also say, the reason I'm a music supervisor in the first place is because I met Quentin Tarantino about 28 years ago. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to be something else when I came to Hollywood. I wanted to be an actor. And I also had ideas about wanting to be a writer and a director. Um, so I just happened to be out of work when I met Quentin at, a, at uh, my friend uh, Tim Roth's house. And uh, we were talking about music and everything. And Tim and Quentin introduced me to the music, the music supervisor who was working on Reservoir Dogs with them at the time, Karen Rackman, the great Karen Rackman. And she uh, hired me to work with her. And I um, started working on uh, post-production Reservoir Dogs. And I worked with her. She was the music supervisor on Pulp Fiction. So I worked with her on Pulp Fiction and did, and, and uh, was allowed to do a lot more work on that and allowed to, you know, make entreaties and, and appeal to, um, you know, Neil Diamond to please give us the rights to a song that had previously been denied. Um, and, you know, got to really, and, and to make suggestions of music that we'd put together um, when Quentin called from the set and said, Bruce Willis wants to sing something from the car. I need, I want ideas. And, you know, Karen and I had just made a mixtape of silly country songs that we loved. And I said, send him that, send him that because, you know, and, and flowers on the wall was on there. Um, so uh, it, it different, um, different needs, filling in for different needs um, is also a music supervisor's job. So I want to clarify that when I created these uh, moments, really Quentin Tarantino is a genius unto himself. He is, um, but I do fulfill a very Im important and necessary uh, job when I'm working with him. He knows that I have his back. He knows he can trust me. He knows that when he sets the palette, for what he wants and has written a script with things in mind. He knows that I'll fill in the blanks if needed. He also knows I will go to the ends of the earth to get what he wants. I do not want to ever have to have the conversation with Quentin where I say, mm, sorry, couldn't find it. <laughs> or mm, sorry, they said no. Um, you know, so those are, those are really important distinctions to make. Cause I, I, you know, I'm, uh, I don't like to take credit for stuff I don't do, um, uh, but I will take credit for the stuff that is is super important that I do, you know. So, um, how you know there's a you know there's this notion when it comes to music, you don't know if it's going to work until it's up there on the screen, until you've 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 put the music, you've you've married it with the image. How often does does quick 
there I've heard this. Does Quentin already have built into his script the songs that he he wants you that he wants to use in a particular scene? And does that make its way from script to screen? Or does it vary? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Oh, it uh, varies. It yeah. varies. He goes, he has said this before. He goes into his record room in his house. Right. Inspiration when he's writing, when he's in the writing stage. Uh-huh. Um, so he'll get inspiration, <clears throat> you know, uh, to write Jackie Brown, um, you know, based on his soul section in his, in his record room. So yeah. he gets his inspiration from music. He's a very musical, um, musically oriented director. He plays music on the set you know, just to get the actors in the mood and get them. Oftentimes it's music that's not ended up, doesn't end up in the actual um, movie. But yeah, I mean, he's very, music's a big part of his storytelling. He's the kind of, like you think of directors as um, storytellers. Like he's the kind of person who's going to stop in the middle of the story and describe why that character's wearing that Bruce Lee yellow outfit and why, you know, this piece of music is playing because it's from this Sergio, Sergio Leone picture and it's you know so there's referential reasons for certain musical choices as well um but that said there's still an opportunity for new things to enter in for instance Django Unchained was the first opportunity um to that to um for him to use new music music that had been that he didn't know about beforehand music that was inspired by his story and was and you know, I, I had the artists send them to him um, and uh, with handwritten letters and they had to do it on a cassette tape because that's the way he liked to listen to things. And, you know, that's how those new pieces of music cracked open um, Django Unchained because it was a love story at its core and a revenge story. And those are two very, um, very powerful themes for these incredible songwriters to um to write about so he was able to take these and and find places for them in his movie um so anyways that was a new opportunity to have you know a new song by Ennio Morricone for instance um Rick Ross and Jamie Foxx wrote a song um John Legend wrote a song so um and we were able to create um uh, a mashup between James Brown and Tupac um, for a scene that that actually was kind of something that I helped create that was um, used in a really hugely iconic, you know, gun battle. And uh, it, was, it was, it was, that one was the first time to really crack open and let him um, see what it's like to use stuff that he had, he hadn't grown up with or hadn't, you know, already had in his record room. The, um, how often, tell us about a little bit about, you know, I, I hear this on independent films, like they had a budget, you know, they allocated $20,000 for this one song they wanted to use. It, do songs go for that much? I mean, are the, is it, is there something like, how, how is it when when you're when you're picking and plugging songs? Is it the more popular the 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 cost goes up, or the is the Beatles catalog at an astronomical level that requires I don't know 
I mean, Michael Jackson controls all the Beatles songs, if I'm correct. It's not even Paul. And Ray Charles. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Michael Jackson catalog. The Michael is- Jackson estate. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Just a little bit about the economics and, and, and kind of like the, the, like you were mentioning, you, uh, you needed to write a note to Neil Diamond hmm. to, get, to get one of his songs cleared for, for, Pulp, for Pulp Fiction. For Pulp Fiction, yeah, it was "Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon," and it was um, um, it was denied at first because we didn't have a lot of money to offer, and also they were not sure who they didn't know who Quentin Tarantino was. They didn't know what his, um, you know, what this story was about. And at at first blush, it looked like you know, just this violent, you know, scene. And so, um, you know, the letter was you know begging, basically just saying, "Look, it's a scene where." A woman is doing drugs, yes, but it does not glorify drugs in any way. As a matter of fact, she almost dies from an overdose. And, um, you know, um, so it was that kind of a, and, and I'm sure there was some other explanations about how great the story was. I mean, uh, things like that became important. But when you're talking about budget, um, there's two things to pay for when you are licensing music. And we're going to bore your audience, but, um, but there's, you know, there's the, what you call the sync and the master. So the sync is the composition, the writers, the writer part that's controlled by publishing. Um, and then there's the master recording, which is, you know, that's why you can license, um, you know, cherry bomb by the runaways, but you can also license it by, you know, Joan Jett. Um, Cause it's, you know, recorded the same song is recorded by different artists. So those are different masters. Um, but oftentimes these days you end up paying the same price. The same, so for instance, uh, if um, Cherry Bomb costs 10000 for the publishing, um, the master will also be 10000 So it's sync and master rights. You're always paying for two parts of a song. Um, even if you do a cover, like sometimes, you know, directors will say, well, can I do a cover of Can't Buy Me Love? It's like, well, yes. You can. My mother could sing it. I mean, and she'll cost you nothing, but the publishing of Can't Buy Me Love is going to be um, what you, what's going to drive the price. So in any case, it does fluctuate. And I've found, I mean, I've been doing this for so long and I do have good allies. I like to call them allies um, at the publishing companies and the record labels. I know them. I've worked with them. They see me coming. Because oftentimes what I'm working on does require some, you know, creative work, creative um, licensing types of situations. Um, But I'm going to come to them with a reason. And I'm going to come to them with a reason for why this needs to be at this price. And and I'm going to move on. I'm going to have to move on if I can't get it for within that price. So, for instance, um, you know, talking about Quentin... Yes, his movies are huge and he has huge budgets. He doesn't have a composer usually. So he uses individual songs, song, needle drops. We call them needle drops. Every time you hear a song or a piece of music, it's a you know, needle drop. So he uses you know, hundreds of needle drops in his films because he doesn't use score. So you pay for every single one of those things. And that's, that's how it kind of drives up. And boy, Once Upon a Time was... <laughs> was several because it was basically a an opera. I mean, it was basically a a, a radio opera. Um, 
So uh, it's, it's always very important to have allies in the licensing community because um, who, who get what you're going for, who understand it and who want to want to work with you. And I was lucky actually in what Mrs. America, um, that's something that came into play with Mrs. America as well. Have you watched the third season of Westworld on HBO, David? It's amazing. What Jonathan Nolan and his wife, Lisa Joy, have done by taking this, what was this Michael Crichton movie with Yul Brenner and turning it into this great action noir series that talks about us today in our near future, dealing with artificial intelligence, our reality, and free will and what makes us human. This season, Aaron Paul, Vincent Cassell, Lena Waithe, and Scott Muscutty join cast members Evan Rachel Wood, Jeffrey Wright, Tandy Newton, and Ed Harris. Westworld is Emmy eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. So, um, talking about little fires everywhere, you, we're talking about covers, and you've got, well, at the end of each episode of Little Fires Everywhere, for the most part, you had a cover going on. And uh, the story takes place in the 90s. Um, and there were covers of, of 90s hits. And in the end of episode six here, The Uncanny, where we learn more about Kerry Washington's Mia and her backstory during the 80s, being an art student, how she had her baby, and... and um, being a surrogate and then fleeing and escaping to California at the end. (laughs) But at the end, um, there's a cover of uh, I'm a bitch. I'm a lover by Meredith Brooks. Mm. Complete aside. Everyone thought was sung. The mistake is always that Alanis Morissette saying it. It's not the case. Yeah. Um, So, um, but tell me about that. The whole notion of doing covers of songs or the end of Little Fires Everywhere in lieu of the actual needle drop? And, and what's in, what, what that entailed? Ah, um, when I, actually, when I started on Little Fires Everywhere, um, I'd read the book, so I, I knew a basic idea of what the story was about, although the showrunner, Liz Tigular, like took the story in a totally new direction and took characters in a new direction. It was really fleshed out a lot in the, in the TV um, story. Um, But I had an idea of what might make an interesting concept for the music. It's a very female driven story. Um, Power, two powerful females who are so much alike, but so different. They're both mothers, but they're at odds. And um, there's a lot of like uh, fire and um, and so uh, one of the things that I had come to the project with was um, wanting to uh, possibly hire uh, Isabella Summers, Isa the Machine from Florence and the Machine, because I knew her style was this, this boom, crashy, fiery, you know, she's the sound of Florence and the Machine, basically. Um, and I wanted that kind of vibe for the score of this story. I didn't want it to be... Uh, I didn't want it to feel typical. Um, and uh, it was really great because the other part of it, um, 
she had never scored before. And so the other part of it was that um, Don Soler, who's um, at ABC, she's the ABC executive, um, was really uh, canny in that she said, well, why don't we put her with someone like Mark Isham, who is so well known for his beautiful melodies. He's just such a facile um, composer that it was really kind of a great matchup because the two of them, like, they just worked so well together. It was great. Um, so that part was great. And then the other part of, of working on of my concept for Little Fires was, I knew it was set in the 90s. There's a lot of movies and TV shows that have been really uh, using music from the 90s, using up a lot of 90s music. Um, and I didn't want to use stuff that had been, you know, kind of used before a lot. So um, one way to attack that was uh, making uh, playlists for the characters that really were rooted in the characters and really tried not to use the same types of things that we had heard before. Um, and, and using the individuality of the characters to drive that, uh, those decisions. Um, but also I came to it with the idea of covers um, of 90s songs that were not, um, and that's not a new concept. I mean, as a matter of fact, the Sex and Candy cover is not from, I mean, I, I'd always had that and I always wanted to use that in something. It's been used before, but that's from, what, I mean, four years ago. Um, but it was uh, the idea of having covers done by female voices and and produced by our composers so that it wasn't like stop the score and shove in a shiny new cover you know uh, it was having a seamless transition from score into that cover moment and the covers were chosen specifically for the moments that um for the moments in the episodes so it was really like this whole like concept and it was great to be working with this this team of producers and showrunners that were on board with this idea and um, kind of let us go. I mean, we, everything was talked about. Everything was very, very talked about um, and discussed. And here's the reason why. Um, but at the end of the day, they, um, you know, went with the idea and I think it was turned out great. The, the, the Ruby Amanfu cover of, bitch is so anthemic and the way that it's used in that episode is um you know it's the sixth episode so here you've seen mia carrie washington's character being this mysterious person who is in other i mean yeah who is kind of a bitch in you know some of these other episodes she's got this she's you know steely-eyed and kind of She's got this uh, strong reaction and, and she's kind of mysterious and you don't understand where she's coming from. And this is the episode, her backstory episode, where you get to see where all of her fire and all of her um, scar tissue and everything comes from. And this is the final moment when she's driving away and she's got her baby in the back of the car and she's driving away from her home and the the episode the, the montage is a time lapse and so you get to see mia grow up and you get to see pearl grow up her baby grow up and they pull into the shaker heights ohio um neighborhood where the story takes place uh, at the very end of the song and it's just it's describing yeah i'm a bitch yeah 
I, you can call me that, but, um, it, and the way that it's a ballad and an anthem is just kind of, it, it's, it fits pretty nicely. In Mrs. America, I mean, what a fun, seriously, what a fun selection of songs. It's up there with once uh, with the Tarantino, with your, your Tarantino catalog. And, um, first of all, let's talk about the title theme. A fifth of Beethoven. How cool is that for Walter Murray? So tell us about the, the decision to go with a song, you know, that theme, which is so appropriate, versus an original composer's theme. Oh, wow. Well, we had such a great composer, by the way. I mean, great decision, by the way. I don't question it in an instance, but I'm just curious because... You know, I'm used to an FX show. I'm used to like, you know, the original theme from the Americans. But this, I mean, this makes you know, this is going to rock people. Get get ready to be, you know, get ready to be jolted. That's what it right. tells you. And it's oh, such a great selection. To go back to Little Fires Everywhere, by the way, the theme, the main title theme for that was very, um, I mean, that was iconic and beautiful to like be able to be a part of the creation of that and just like, Yes, bring more fire. Yes, bring more drums. I mean, um, and I've seen a lot of like uh, uh, videos of people dancing around to it, which makes me so happy. Um, but yes, so Mrs. America, I have to say this project was um, very fun. Like I said, I've, I haven't worked on a lot of television before. Um, my background's mainly in, in film. And so this uh, concept of doing so many episodes all at the same time um, is is uh it's crazy and it took me a, a minute to like get up and like run around with it but once i did it was really fun because you'd go into one editing suite and they'd be doing one episode then you'd go to the next one you'd run down the hall and go to the next one and they'd be doing another episode oh wow everyone was very um all the editors um our our producers um our showrunner everybody was so uh creatively connected that everything was a conversation. Every song choice was a conversation, everything. I mean, so, you know, uh, and, and the idea to use a song for the main title, it wasn't always like just a, you know, a given. It was finding the right song. And I was in the room with Stacey Cher, Coco Francini, um, Davi Waller, uh, Ryan Fleck, Anna Bowden, uh, the the creative team were in that room. We had a list of songs we were listening to and playing each one to the picture. And then Stacey Sher just said, well, why don't we try Fifth of Beethoven? I mean, it was out of the blue. She is, you know, I mean, Stacey, I've known Stacey forever. She, you know, has produced Quentin Tarantino movies. So right. um, we have a good, uh, we do a lot of music back and forth. Um, but it, it, it was first, it was a little pushback of like, well, is it too familiar with Saturday Night Fever? Is it too familiar with, you know, disco dancing? Is it not? But really playing it to the opening credit sequence, it just fits so beautifully. And it's the perfect dichotomy of, or the perfect mix, actually, of both sides of the characters, the main characters. Phyllis Schlafly, who, who loves Beethoven and who is very classical and very... And then the freedom and the sexiness of the feminists. So it's it really was um, the perfect thing. 
And then here's the other thing. You, you put in Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, the, BG, the B.J. Thomas song, and it's in the beauty parlor scene where we meet Sarah, we're, we're meeting Sarah Paulson's, Paulson's character. Right. Schlafly's talking about politics. Right. And it ends with nothing's worrying me on Schlafly at home, almost humdrum, looking at the stain of the world the, the, on, uh, on the wall. Humdrums, yes. And her mother mother upset over her hair. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because, I mean, you know, for, for us, for us, you know, over <laughs> 40, raindrops keep falling on my head um, is, you know, you think of, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Right. Um, but it's being, t- I think I've always thought of the song in those terms, but tell me about using it in these terms, selecting well, it. This one was an interesting, uh, this was an interesting conundrum, by the way, um, was trying to do the music from Phyllis Schlafly's point of view. For instance, you know, I said I made uh, character lists and character playlists for Little Fires Everywhere. I did the same thing for um, Mrs. America. So I felt like it really helps, it really helps to keep things rooted in the story rather than my editorializing you know what you know what I think of Phyllis Schlafly. Um, so it uh, and so I made a playlist, and in that playlist were some of these songs from the '60s and '70s that were that were non-confrontational, that were that were pleasant. Um, yes, there was a healthy dose of classical music, which Phyllis would choose to listen to, which she did, in fact. Um, like to listen to. Um, but then there was also, you know, the opportunities to show something from her, um, you know, in pop culture. Um, so there was, you know, some, cla- some uh, bird back rack and there were some, um, what else? There was, oh, and, and also in um, the end credit song, the, the, the yes. over, yeah. um, that's from another Cass one. Elliot. Cass Elliot, Make Your Own Kind Make of Music. Make Your Own Kind of Music. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but the was that a synthesis of both the feminists and Phyllis? Yes. Okay. So yeah. one thing that we were always that Davi Waller, the the showrunner, was very adamant about was making sure that we told a balanced story, and that we didn't try and editorialize, bringing our you know um, opinions uh, to the story, um, which I think actually just really makes this this um, series what it is as as amazing as it is it's um you know it it doesn't it speaks to you without shouting um so uh the end song when the when the feminists are toasting to the era um and the and the camera um pans over to show phyllis's picture on her newsletter and she gets a little champagne spilled on her face um the to use the song, make your own kind of music, felt perfect because it does have that same sensibility that um, would come from a Phyllis playlist, but it also has lyrics that speak to both things that the the uh, feminists were were about and what Phyllis was kind of doing. Because at the essence of this story is the irony that Phyllis Schlafly was a feminist herself, um, strong woman doing her own thing, fighting for something that she, you know, it, it was, um, 
So she was in turn making her own kind of music by choosing to pivot and take on the fight of the ERA. Now, Magic Carpet Ride, yeah. Steppenwolf's Magic Carpet Ride, is played as Phyllis is heading into D.C. And she's driving into, being driven into all the, you know, Shirley Chisholm and in all the protests that are going on there and all the activity. Is Magic Carpet Ride on her character playlist? No. So, and and by the way, that's the um, that's the LP version because it's got that amazing burning long intro, that electric guitar, you know, uh, long burning intro that plays over Phyllis, you know, giving the stink eye to her husband across the table, um, and it uh, it just erupts into this like excellent rock and roll song as she gets out of the cab and walks and finds herself in DC amidst a feminist uh, demonstration. And she's trying to make her way through them with her beehive and trying to make her way through them to get to the, um, the building. So um, uh, that is just an example of some of the amazing uh, music we had from this period that we could choose from. I mean, um, when you're working on a period piece, um, and like this one, there's only so much real estate you get for song choices. So, I mean, when there's like so much great music from this period, time period, so much great rock music, so much great, I mean, it was the birth of so many different sounds too. Um, it really was kind of a daunting task. So one of the things that I tried to do at the very beginning of the job of the job, of the project was, um, I like to find dynamic pieces, dynamic pieces of music, because you only get so much opportunity to play a song as opposed to score. Um, also, when you don't have a, a, an unlimited budget, you really need to choose those songs wisely. So it was important to like, um, uh, create, you know, have at the ready, um, really great dynamic, rock songs from the period and soul songs um, for the editors and for the showrunner to be able to, um, to use. Um, so one thing that I did at the very beginning was, because I knew we didn't have a lot of, I mean, the, I knew the budget was very, very under budgeted, the music budget. Um, and I had hopes that it would be augmented, um, but I didn't want us to get down the road with having to and, and having to make uncreative choices based on lack of money. So I appealed to my allies at the record companies and at the publishing companies that I knew had a really good selection of 70s music, 60s and 70s music. And I appealed to them when I first started the project and, and tried to come up with um, certain types of deals, um, you know, tier, deals and um, being able to have a certain amount of songs used for within a certain budget. So that was something that I set up at the very beginning of the project so that we could have creative freedom moving forward in, you know, working with this period piece. I mean, in, a, in, a, in period pieces, it, things that are set in a certain period, that becomes kind of, you know, an issue. If it's something is like a current day project, I can reach out to so many uh, great indie bands and great places and, and could be able to use things um, a little more easily 
but when it's a period piece, you kind of do have to find record companies that are open to to this possibility and and publishing companies. And so I have to say, I mean, a lot of people were excited about this project. So I was I was grateful to have really good allies at Universal Music Publishing, Universal Records, Sony ATV, Sony Records, um, uh, Concord Music, BMG. Um, it was it, everybody seemed to be really excited about this project, and so they were very willing to work with me. So that was important. I think that was important actually because the the editors are very cool about like trying different songs in certain spots too. Um, and I think it was really great to be able to provide them with dynamic stuff to be able to choose from um, too. One more song before we go um, from, from the first episode of, of Mrs. America, Fire, Etta James's Fire. We yes. play when we meet all of the feminists, Gloria Steinem, she's on her way uh, into the scene and we see Shirley. Um, the um what what was that the year the year for that song fire it was in the it was a it's a 60s song i believe and it's um okay. yeah uh that was the thing too is I, I, we had to be specific about the years um, yeah. because it was tied to certain events like the democratic national convention in in miami it was i mean there were certain you know specific events and not just year sometimes by the month so that was uh, a lot of the research as well i could not send them things that came out in you know like later like 73 or 74 right if, it, if, if the action yeah. was in 71 so i mean uh that was a, a really uh important part of the process too but, but anything again, dynamic. older mm-hmm. anything older you could do Yes, because Even, you know, I mean, we still hear yeah. old songs on the radio now, just yeah, futuristic. But right. that was an amazing dynamic song. I just love that song. I love Etta James. So, but it just the way it starts with the downbeat and the yelp. I mean, it's just just a cool track. And um, the editor Robert Kamatsu, he used it over the archi- you know, archival footage and everything. It was really, um, really a fun, fun use. Now. Did did you select these songs after seeing the first cut of the episode or after seeing certain scenes? How, because this is such a, like I said, like the work you've, you've done for Mr. Tarantino, you've, you've got a rich selection here. And I'm curious, were some of these, like, how did it work on, on Mrs. America? Well, sometimes I'd be, I'd be able to come into the editing room and see, a, a you know, um, assembly um sometimes um i'd be just given a description you know or i'd use the script or whatever so there were a lot of different ways to come up with the ideas but then again um before even seeing anything i'd put together my you know my dynamic song too so there was the character playlist yeah the character playlist too um so it was like that, but I, uh, it, and there was also, you know, moments of thinking ahead and trying to make budget saving decisions, thinking ahead. Like I knew in episode nine that, um, Phyllis was going to have her, um, her singing on camera moment with her benefit. Um, 
So thinking ahead to uh, making suggestions of public domain compositions that we could play around with without, without um, you know, taking a budget hit on those. So we used Gilbert and Sullivan and um, certain things like that. So those were kind of, of decisions um, made beforehand too. Also when John plays the piano using the entertainer and, and some pieces of music that were public domain were important to do because I knew wherever we could save budgetary, you know, make, make budget saving decisions uh, preemptively, um, it was going to give us more freedom later on. And I hate to talk about that when we're talking about creativity, but it's a fact. It's just a fact. And so. And, uh, that's very fascinating too, just how it's all woven together. You know, especially like I said, when you hear these stories that, you know, we wanted to get Can't Buy Me Love, and it, but it would have cost us a million dollars. And there was no way we were going to pay a million dollars for Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, Mary Ramos, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I could I could talk to you for another hour. I mean it. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank, thank you so you. much for, for talking with us today on Crew Call. Thank you for having me. This was, honestly, this was really nice to do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.